Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is May 20th, 2021, and we are going to be discussing a piece that recently appeared in the New York Times regarding Sinead O'Connor. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, David. It's a beautiful morning here in Colorado. Um, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. I, uh, I'm kind of interested to talk about this because I was going to do a video on this years ago. Of course, by virtue of the reporter going out to Ireland and talking to Sinead O'Connor, the impressions that I had just as an armchair quarterback were different than the situation on the ground. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that's why it's important to have reporting to sort of see what does Sinead O'Connor think about all this? That's right. <laughs> and so, uh, so I think it's a good idea for us to actually listen to what she says. Exactly. Um, so they did a profile on her. I don't know if it was in the magazine or if it was just a regular episode. I will state, you know, when we do foreign affairs episodes, I say I'm a subscriber to foreign affairs. I stopped subscribing to the New York Times because during the Trump administration with the news that was coming out every day, I would read the New York Times um, daily and it would make me feel bad. So I stopped subscribing to it. I mean, I think that there's something to that. Uh, it's good to be informed, but at some point you say, okay, I feel obligated to read at least, you know, the main headlines and the op-eds in the New York Times. And every day it would make me feel worse. And so mm -hmm. why should I pay to feel worse? <laughs> it kind of reminds me, and of course in this article we can see she's smoking a cigarette. It kind of reminds me of uh, when you go out and you spend whatever it is today. I mean, when I was... Uh, Younger, I used to smoke, and cigarettes were six, seven bucks a pack. I'm sure they're eight, nine now. You spend nine dollars to feel worse. You smoke a cigarette, and yeah, like so. It's like so. Why would I spend money on the New York Times when reading it makes me feel bad? But they do do some good journalism. This piece is by Amanda Hess. She is what did you say? The critic at large, and she contributes mm -hmm. to the magazine. Um, mm -hmm. So shall I talk about what I was going to talk about? How I remember things because the piece is entitled. Sinead O'Connor remembers things differently. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the narrative that I have that I think is very much in the minds of people. This is how things are remembered. And then do you talk to Sinead O'Connor and she sees things differently? I remember Sinead O'Connor in the late 80s, early 90s, her career just took off, skyrocketed. She had one of the most popular videos on MTV for a cover of a Prince song she did called Nothing Compares to You. Um... A uh, lovely voice, great singer, and she was at the top of her career. And then in the early 90s, 91, 92, she went on Saturday Night Live. And I believe it was in her second song, and I remember this when it happened. I was a little kid, but I remember the people and their, what they thought about her. She did Bob Marley's Exodus, which is, um, you know, a song about African rights and she said we need to fight. She changed the lyrics to say we need to fight against child abuse. We need to fight against child abuse. And she finishes the song and she holds up a picture of the Pope and she tears it in two. And she says, fight the real enemy. And I remember there was just immediate backlash against her. So she's, she's crazy. She's, she's a bad person. Look at this. She's just trying to be shocking, just tearing up a picture of the Pope. And, of course, she's Irish Catholic, or she's Catholic, and her family was Irish. I mean, she's Irish, and her family was Catholic. I wouldn't, I don't think you go on TV and tear up a picture of the Pope if you're a diehard Catholic, if you know what I mean. But she came from a Catholic background, and she immediately got rejected. Her career immediately went in the crapper. And so the story I wanted to tell is, she was right. The Catholic Church was abusing people in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s, and they were able to sweep it under the rug, and it wasn't until decades later that she was vindicated. Oh, there was systematic child abuse going on in the Catholic Church, and she was speaking out again It's decades before her time. And if instead of shunning her and ruining her career, you would have said, what do you mean, and allowed her to do interviews, and said, well, let's look into this, and you stopped the child abuse, you could have saved the lives of thousands of children that were abused. And so it's sort of an object lesson in, 
Well, she was shunned at the time, but history really proved her right. Uh, and it's kind of a shame that popular culture decided to just throw her under the bus when she did something that was controversial. When other people do things that are controversial and they're not speaking out against uh, important evil in the world, and they're allowed to continue to do what they do. So that was my story. Uh, how do you feel about my version of the story before we get into the real story? Uh, I, I, uh, during those, the, I remember when it happened, but I, uh, I wasn't that uh, involved in it. it. I go, oh, wow, uh, that was pretty, uh, uh, pretty brave to do that. And uh, and then when I saw her, you know, her her career uh, was undermined and pretty much went away. And I go, OK, well, uh, every, everything that was said was that, you know, she's she's crazy. And so nobody can will hire her or anything. And so I never thought about it. Uh, so essentially, I, I was working and I was really busy back then and I didn't think about it, which is another object lesson that when you're. I guess someone says, you know, if uh, if enough good people say nothing or don't get involved, then evil will triumph. Uh, and I think uh, Sinead O'Connor, she spoke up and she did what had to be done. And uh, and she was right. Mm -hmm. That's that's the other thing, too, is that uh, another object lesson that, that unfortunately is that uh, should you say something when you know it's not going to go well for you? Well, if you're right, uh, sometimes it's not going to go well for you. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality of it. But if you're right, you know you're right. And so you just say what's right. Uh, and history will be kind. So, and sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. No. But the point is, you know, you know in your heart that you're right. And so you say what's right and you go for it. And she did. And now, what, how many years later? Uh, 30, 40 years later. Yeah, 30. 30 years later. Now it came out that, yeah, she was right. Well, everyone knew she was right for a long time. People were like, isn't it sad that it destroyed her career? Well, this article says, no, it's not sad at all. And let me tell you why. And that's that's the beauty of this article. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, to me, it's another lesson. Listen to what people say and try to understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people heard what they said, what she said back then, and then didn't try to understand it or, or vet it or going or, or is it true? Uh, they just, OK, uh, they just swept her under the rug. Yeah, they just said she did this because she was trying to get attention and that nothing could be further from the truth. Um, she was trying to bring attention to an evil in the world. So shall we get into the article? Yeah, let's do that. Sinead O'Connor remembers things differently. This is the title. There's a picture of her. She's wearing like a blue hijab. She's smoking a cigarette. She's got tattoos on her hand. She's got a Star of David ring. And it says, The mainstream narrative is that a pop star ripped up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and derailed her life. What if the opposite were true? Very good lead-in. A grabber, you know. And then we get into the body of the article by Amanda Hess. Sinead O'Connor is alone which is how she prefers to be. She has been riding out the pandemic in a tiny village on an Irish mountaintop, watching murder shows, buying fairy garden trinkets online, and mainlining American news on CNN. On a recent overcast afternoon, she had a navy hijab arranged around her shaved head and a cigarette permanently installed between her fingertips. And when she leaned over an iPad inside her all-glass conservatory, she looked as if she had been hermetically sealed into her own little world. I'm lucky, she said, because I enjoy my own company. Her cottage was appointed in bright, saturated colors that leapt out from the monotonous backdrop of the Irish sky with the surreal quality of a pop-up book. Bubblegum roses lined the windows, and the Hindu goddess Durga stretched her eight arms across a blanket on a cozy cherry couch. When O'Connor, 54, gave me a little iPad tour during our video interview, the place seemed to fold in on itself. The flowers were fake ones she bought on Amazon.com, and her pair of handsome velvet chairs weren't made for sitting. Deliberately, I bought uncomfortable chairs because I don't like people staying long, she said. I like being on my own. 
but she disclosed this with such an impish giggle that it sounded almost like an invitation. O'Connor is, no matter how hard she tries to fight it, irresistible. She exudes a tender familiarity thanks to her cherubic smile, her loose tongue, and the fact that she happens to possess one of the most iconic heads in pop culture memory. In the early 90s, O'Connor became so famous that the very dimensions of her skull seemed inscribed in the public consciousness. If you remember two things about her, it's that she vaulted to fame with that enduring close-up in the video for her version of Nothing Compares to You, and then that she stared down a Saturday Night Live camera, tore up a photo of Pope John Paul II, and killed her career. But O'Connor doesn't see it that way. In fact, the opposite feels true. Now she has written a memoir, Rememberings, that recasts the story from her perspective. I feel that having a number one record derailed my career, she writes, and my tearing up the photo put me back on the right track. O'Connor saw herself as a protest singing punk. When she ascended to the top of the charts, she was trapped. The media was making me out to be crazy because I wasn't acting like a pop star was supposed to act, she told me. It seems to me that being a pop star is almost like being in a type of prison. You have to be a good girl. And that's just not Sinead O'Connor. That's the lead. Shall we discuss it? Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yep. I think that it's, uh, it's fascinating. It put my career back on track. And I think that a lot of that is I was being who I am. Yeah, and so finally, when they saw who she was, uh, she felt freer. Mm -hmm. And when they are doing what everyone thinks she should do, it was a prison. Yeah. And, you know, that's probably true so many times. And people just go ahead and stay in prison. Mm -hmm. They follow what other people tell them to do. They, 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 they follow the pack. Well, and, and they obey the rules. Well, a lot of people's livelihoods and careers are sort of vested. There's a vested interest in her not speaking out against child abuse. And she says, and I can sort of take all of my passions and take all of my convictions and sort of push them down into a big, deep hole for the next 20 years and make a lot of money. Or I could speak my truth now and get my career back on the right track. Because I don't want to live in a world where I'm not allowed to say that child abuse is bad because it'll ruin my career. I think that's kind of what I'm getting out of it in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she didn't want to be what someone else wanted her to be. She wanted to be herself. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I had chat up. Can you adjust your camera? I'm sorry. That was my bad. I left chat up. Um, so, yeah. So, so what we're seeing right now, the initial part of the article is being a pop star requires you to be a certain type of person. And she wasn't that type of person. She just happened to be a pop star. And so the act that people say ruined her career, she says it got her back on track. And I like that because it's like, I wasn't being who I was. And I didn't want to go through another 20, 30 years of being this person that I wasn't. So early on, I did something that showed everyone who I was. And people say it derailed my career. I say it put my career back on track because my yeah. career should be being who I am. To me, I don't know if she meant meant it this way, but another takeaway for me is that she was a good singer. She mm -hmm. was a very good singer. It was a good song. And and she sang because she was good at it. But sometimes you don't do things just because you're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you should do things because you believe in it. And it's you. You should be true to yourself. And uh, she was the kind of person that was true to herself. Whether you, whether you agree with her or not, she's true to herself. Yeah. I mean, I agree with her that systematic abuse of children and covering it up and shuffling priests from one parish to the next so they can abuse more children is a bad thing. I think I think I'm on her side with this one. Uh, well, I am, too. I am, too. But the pop culture, were, they were not. Well, they weren't ready to hear that either. There's a right. movie called Spotlight. It won Best Picture. And mm -hmm. it's the team at the Boston Globe, I think. And they uncovered sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, uh, you know, in the early 2010s or whatever. And they sort of blew the lid on it. Spotlight was the team that they were like the lid blowing journalistic hotshots. And the guy's like, well, we did this. 
And like everyone was trying to shove it under the rug. And someone's like, well, go back and look at your work. And he did an article 20 years before where there was all these people accusing the Catholic Church and he buried it. And he's like, I was part of the problem. Uh, that's sort of like the at the end of the movie, he realizes, you know, 20 years ago, I wasn't brave enough to do this or, you know. And then when time made it okay, I was able to go through with this and sort of expose them. And it was difficult even, you know, 20 years later because the Catholic Church was a powerful entity that was fighting back. But look at me. 20 years ago, a bishop came to me and said, this isn't a thing. Just, you know, don't pursue this any further. And I said, okay. And... I could have blown the lid on this whole thing 20 years earlier and hundreds or thousands of kids might not have been abused. Right. But it's tough when you're fighting power. So she, she was obviously in 1992 on SNL. She was ahead of her time. People weren't ready to hear it. But she was ready to say it and more power to her. Because... And, and you know, also, to me, uh, some people will say, I should have done it 20 years ago. I knew about it. I didn't say anything. And I just didn't do it. Uh, well, you can feel bad, but you can't really blame them. Uh, they they didn't have the they were not in the place to do what Sinead O'Connor did. Sinead O'Connor was in the place to do it, you mm -hmm. know. And so everyone's different. And I think we have to be really, really slow to blame people. Uh, I think you have to be very, very careful uh, to try to understand people first. Uh, before you start throwing blame around, yeah, uh, I just I, I want to say that I want to say that. Uh, and Sinead O'Connor was in the place where she was in a place. She saw it, and she says, "I'm going to wait." I think later, I think she says, "I'm going to wait for the right time," and this is the right time, and she did it. And uh, and more power to her because she did what was right. Yes. Um, shall we continue with the article? Sure. Would you like to read? Okay. Crazy is a word that does some dirty cultural work. It is a flip way of referencing mental illness, yes, but it's also a slippery label that has little to do with how a person's brain works and everything to do with how she is culturally received. Calling someone crazy is the ultimate silencing technique. It robs a person of her very subjectivity. By the time, time O'Connor appeared on SNL in October 1992, she had already been branded an insane for boycotting the Grammy Awards, where she was up for record uh, for record of the year. They reorganized only material gain, she said, and refusing to play the Star Spangled Banner before her concerts because national anthems have nothing to do with music in general. But now her reputation felt at permanent risk. I'm not sorry I did it. It was brilliant, she said, of her protest against abuse in the Catholic Church. But it was very traumatizing, she added. It was open season on treating me like a crazy bitch. Soon after the show, O'Connor appeared at a Bob Dylan tribute concert. And when the crowd booed, she was so taken aback, she thought at first that they were making fun of her outfit. Joe Pesky threatened to smack her in SNL monologue and later on that same stage, Madonna mocked her in a gently condescending fashion, placed scowling and ripping up a, a photograph of the tabloid star sex offender, Joy Budifuco. O'Connor was condemned by the Anti-Defamation League and a group called the National Ethnic Coalition of Organizations, which hired a steamroller to crush hundreds of her albums outside of her record company's headquarters. The Washington Times named her the face of pure hatred, and Frank Sinatra called her one stupid broad. <laughs> now O'Connor's memory arrives at a time when the culture seems eager to reassess these old judgments. The top comment on a YouTube rip of O'Connor's Behind the Music episode is, can we all just say she was right? Few cultural castaways have been more vindicated by the passage of time child sex abuse and his cover-up within the Catholic Church is no longer an open secret. John Paul II finally acknowledged the Church's role in 2001, nearly a decade after O'Connor's act of defiance. But the overreaction to O'Connor was not just about whether she was right or wrong. It was about the kinds of provocations we accept from women in music. Not because I was famous or anything, 
but because I was a human being, I had a right to put my hand up and say what I felt, O'Connor said. Some artists, artists are skilled at shocking in a way designed to sell more records, and others at tempering their political rage into palatable music. But Sinead is not the tempering type. Her friend, Bob Geldof, the musician and activist, told me, in that, she is very much an Irish woman. To understand why O'Connor may have seen her culture of backlisting as liberating, you have to understand just how deeply she was misapprehended throughout her career. She was still a teenager when she started work on her fierce, ethereal first record, The Lion and the Cobra, when an executive, a square unto high heaven, called her to lunch and told her to dress more femininely and grow out her close cropped hair. So she marched to a barber and shaved it all off. <laughs> I look like an alien, she writes in the book, which was a kind of escape hatch from looking like a human woman. When O'Connor became pregnant in the midst of recording, she writes that the ex-executive called a doctor and tried to coerce her into having an abortion, which she refused. Her first son, Jake, arrived just before the album did. Later, when Nothing Compares to You made her a star, O'Connor said the song's writer, Prince, terrorized her. She had pledged to reveal the details. When, I, when I'm an old lady and I write my book, and now she has. She writes that Prince summoned her to her macabre Hollywood mansion, chastised her for swearing in interviews, harangued his butler to serve her soup through, though she repeatedly refused it, and sweetly suggested a pillow fight, only to thump her with something hard it slipped into his pillowcase. When she escaped on foot in the middle of the night, she writes, he stalked, with, he stalked her with his car, leapt out and chased her around the highway. Prince is the type of artist who is hailed as crazy in a good way, as in, you've got to be crazy to be a musician, O'Connor said, but there's a difference between being crazy and being a violent abuser of women. Still, the fact that her best known songs is written by this person does not phase her at all. As far as I'm concerned, she said, it's my song. Okay, so I mean, there was just, I feel like this was a little bit, well, the beginning is good. I like the using crazy to brand someone just to invalidate anything they have to say. I think that's a tactic that people use a lot. I think we've seen that a lot this last four years. Yeah. And um, now the the Prince stuff, I think that's just one of the salacious revelations in her book. And I, I saw when I tried to find this article and pull it up for the podcast, she's, you know, using that anecdote on interviews. And I think it's, she's on a book tour. You know, she's finally, she, like she said, she's old. And I'll tell people about it when I'm old and I write my book. Well, now is that time. She's pulling that ant anecdote out of the hat and dusting it off. And she wants it to get into the article because she thinks maybe this will sell some books to hear it in my words. But um, I don't think that that's the, the thrust of this article. I guess, you know, the author does a good job of tying it to Prince was crazy in a good way. You know, whereas O'Connor, by virtue of being a woman, by being political, by speaking out and taking a bold stand is crazy in a way where you dismiss anything she has to say, you know? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, see, who's the writer again? I don't know. Uh, it's uh, Amanda Hess. I think what Amanda Hess is doing here is contrasting crazy. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that was, I think that's good if to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people have been crazy, crazy in a good way. Uh, but the crazy was used against uh, O'Connor in, in a negative way. Yes. And, you know, defiance. She's not the tempering type. She's very much an Irish woman. She just tells it like it is. And she's, I think she sees any tempering as inauthenticity on her part. Right. And right. I guess I'll take a an example from um, a podcast that I watch. Well, I, I see clips of it on YouTube. It's in my algorithm. And it's uh, H3 and this lady, Trisha Paytas. And she's been on YouTube a long time. And she, everyone calls her crazy. 
And so she's been in these different crews, and they said, oh, you're just crazy to kick her out of the crew. You're crazy. And so she teamed up with this guy because she was dating the guy's wife's brother. Long story short, I said, yeah, and they used to say it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like, well, I kind of feel like you might be crazy. And they brought on a psych- psychologist to an episode, and they had him talk to her. And then off the air, it's like, I think you really do need to go see someone. I think that, you know, you could benefit from help. Like, you may have some mental illness that could benefit from professional intervention. And so she got the professional intervention. She's like, my life is better than it's ever been. You know, thanks to the fact that instead of just calling me crazy, you've decided to say, no, I don't think you're crazy. I think you might have a mental illness. Maybe you should get some help for that. And helping me arrange the resources necessary to go get the help I need. And it's made my life immeasurably better. And I think that's a fascinating thing about crazy. You can use crazy to dismiss someone out of hand, or you can say, maybe I should help this person. But I'm not sure Good that she, I'm not sure that Sinead O'Connor was mentally ill. You know? No, no, I don't see that at all. So you use crazy to dismiss someone out of hand. So at sometimes they may actually be crazy. They may actually need help. That's right. Um, other times you're just trying to silence someone that's saying something that's inconvenient. Uh, one one crazy is talking about the person themselves. The other is is. Uh, Attacking what they're saying because it's it's uncomfortable, and they use that crazy what they say to try to discount what is being said, mm-hmm. and so they they attack the source by name calling, and that, and actually actually it's name calling. It's not it's not saying I think you are crazy. You need help. It's that what you're saying is something I don't like. So you're crazy, and so I don't know. Again, uh, that tactic uh, unfortunately is has been used over and over again that we've seen uh-huh. in politics. So let's go to the last paragraph of the section that you read. Um, how do you feel about her saying, as far as I'm concerned, it's my song, to Prince's, the Prince wrote, nothing compares to you, but it was O'Connor's biggest hit. Uh, well, he wrote it, but she sang it, and she made it popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he sang. Have, he sang it too. He sang it too. Uh, I have no definitive uh, thing to say about that. I think that I mean, her version is hers, you know, and her version is what people know. And you know, she felt the words, and she felt them, and she sang them from the heart, and that's why it was a huge hit. And I think that he hit in his hands; it wouldn't have been the same hit. Because I think her life experiences added more to that song than just the words and the melody and the music that he wrote. That's why he, she's saying that. And yeah, now, the, it's, it's not about the song; it's about her feeling in the song. Her performance, saying. yeah, it was pretty. Yeah. It was pretty great. And so, it was good. so I'm saying, I I can. I mean, it's not her song; it's Prince's song. He wrote the song, but she performed it well. It's her performance. It's his song. Because I have a mind of in music publishing she doesn't get a share just because she performed it very well you know uh that's not how it works but the world will remember that as her song you know what i mean because because she had the definitive version mm-hmm. so shall we move on okay okay and we're moving on O'Connor's statement on SNL was more personal than most knew. In the book, she details how her mother physically abused her throughout her childhood. I won the prize in kindergarten for being able to curl up in the smallest ball, but my teacher never knew why I could do it so well, she writes. There is a reason in the Nothing Compares to You video. She begins to cry when she hits the line about her mama's flowers. O'Connor was 18 when her mother died, and on that day, she took down the one photograph on her mom's bedroom wall the image of the Pope. O'Connor carefully saved the photo, waiting for the right moment to destroy it. Child abuse is an identity crisis, and fame is an identity crisis. So I went straight from one identity crisis into another, she said. And when she tried to call attention to child abuse through her fame, she was vilified. People would say that she's fragile, Geldof said. No, no, no. Many people would have collapsed under the weight of being Sinead O'Connor, had it not been Sinead. Instead, O'Connor felt free. 
I could just be me, do what I love, be imperfect, be mad even, she writes in the book. I am not a pop star. I'm just a troubled soul who needs to scream into mics now and then. She sees the backlash as having pushed her away from the wrong life in mainstream pop and forced her to make a living performing live, which is where she feels most comfortable as an artist. Rememberings is a document of a difficult life, but it is also deliciously funny, starting with the title. As I've said, I can't remember many details because I was constantly stoned, she writes. It is loaded with the charming stories from the height of her fame. She rejects the red-hot chili pepper singer Anthony Kiedis' claim that they had a thing, only in his mind, but confirms a fling with Peter Gabriel. To discover the profane term she assigns to their affair, you'll have to read it. But the... <laughs> But the book does not supply a tidy, cheerful sort of vindication. These moments of cultural reassessment can feel like the awarding of a consolation prize. The fallout of past judgments can never truly be reversed. Meanwhile, the same dynamics keep repeating over and over again. In recent years, O'Connor's mental health has become grist for the therapy-entertainment complex overseen by the likes of Dr. Drew and Dr. Phil, who thrive on casting illness as drama and converting pain into spectacle. O'Connor has seen a little bit of herself in women who came after her, in Amy Winehouse and Britney Spears. What they did to Britney Spears was disgusting, she said. If you met a stranger in the street crying, you'd put her, your arms around her. You wouldn't start taking photos of her, you know. It is not lost on O'Connor that the night Spears was roundly categorized as a crazy person. She shaved her hair off. Why were they saying she's crazy for shaving her head, she said. I'm not. O'Connor still shaves her head herself about every 10 days. I just don't feel like me when I have hair, she said. She usually wears a hijab over it now. She converted to Islam several years ago and started going by the name Shuhanda Sadaqat, though she still answers to O'Connor too. She wrote the first part of her memoir in 2015, but after having a hysterectomy and a total breakdown, as she puts it in the book, it took time for her to revisit the project. She spent six years in and out of mental health facilities. The book is partly dedicated to the staff and patients of St. Patrick's University Hospital, and she now has some clarity about how her mind works, chiefly that she has complex post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. Her difficulty remembering the post-SNL period is also the product of trauma. It was a very lonesome, lonesome 10 years, O'Connor said. I really trust the subconscious, she added. If it doesn't want you to remember something, there's a very good reason for that. That was a pretty powerful segment. Wow, yeah, it sure was. Well, I mean, it's tough when the you get called the face of hatred by the Anti-Defamation League for saying that child abuse is bad. Um, so, I mean, she did have a lot of issues, and she, she did seek out professional help, you know? Yeah. And... The interesting thing is, I think that with mental health, someone spends their whole life sort of dealing with it. And I've heard this described before, the problem of story. You know, in a story, you have a problem and you go and you get help for it and then you get better. In life, you have a problem, you go and you get help for it. And that problem plagues you for your whole life. And people don't understand why you haven't gotten better. And that's the way it is with mental health. And the thing is that it's something that you have to deal with every day of your life for the rest of your life. And people don't think that way because they think in terms of story. They think, oh, no, you went to get help and now it's better. Like, no, that's not how it works, you know. So they expect their expectation is sort of based upon a common structure of a story when that's not the way life works. Life's not a story. That's right. And you say, oh, she had mental problems. Well, uh, I... I truly, truly believe that uh, everybody, everybody has mental problems. That's being human. It's just a different, different level, different spectrum. Uh, and you have to deal with everything. Everyone has to deal with these things. Mm -hmm. And some and everyone deals with them differently. Uh, and some people need help. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how we're made. And like some people who, who need help from the outside, uh, you need to give them help because they have you need to unleash uh, the talent, the intelligence, the potential within humans. And sometimes it's it's difficult to people need help to bring that 
that talent out. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, I think our society needs to be much more accepting with all types of personalities mm-hmm. uh, to get down into the to the value and beauty of a of a person inside. I I also think that the the uh, extraordinary fire that burns within someone that's struggling with the issues, it goes into their creative output, and that's what makes it so brilliant. Are you there? Yep, that's true too. I was trying to take my uh, mute off. Uh, that's true too, David. I agree. I agree. Uh, should we continue with the article? Yep. You want to do the next section? Sure. Do you want me to, or do you want to? I'll I'll try to do it. it it's um... O'Connor never understood why people were so drawn to her music. But a few years ago, she was preparing to head out on a, on a tour after a long break from the road, and I couldn't remember the bloody lyrics of any of the songs, she said. For the first time, she browsed the internet for old artifacts from her career. I was like, Jesus Christ, this is really good, she said. That's me? Oh, my God. A couple of years ago, the Irish producer David Holmes approached O'Connor, starstruck at an event, and asked if she'd make a record with him about healing. She is just an incredibly complex individual, and she should never be judged, Holmes told me. She doesn't go out of her way to try to hurt anyone. She's just Sinead, and she wears her heart on her sleeve. Their seven-track album, No Veteran Dies Alone, is due out later this year. O'Connor's ethereal sound has acquired an an appealingly raw undercurrent. When she sings on the title track, there are two mess, the one that you see and the real me, who I'm not supposed to be. Her pull is undeniable. As Holmes put it, she's got that voice. It's like a friend. O'Connor's own friends describe her as a naturally loving person. She's a generous soul, the Pogue sinner, singer Shane McGowan told me over email. She looked after me when I really needed it said her longtime friend, Kara Hanaho. Uh, I've just found that she could be relied upon. And I think that's probably the most important thing. O'Connor is a dedicated email correspondent, as I wrote. She sent me emails signed Sinead Shuhara and punctuated with emojis of sunglasses and cherry blossoms. But her complex post-traumatic stress has translated into agoraphobia and her life circumstances have not always allowed for people to stay close. Geldof knows friends who won't speak to O'Connor anymore, but he's not one of them. She can say whatever she likes about me and my wife, he said, because it's her. O'Connor is happy being her on her own with her garden and her Mayfair cigarettes and her iPads and her imaginary boyfriend, uh, Ty Diggs, uh, to keep her company via, via episodes of Murder in the First, I haven't been terribly successful at being a girlfriend or a wife, she said. I'm a bit of a handful, let's face it. But a few months ago, when she moved into her blissful remote cottage, she found that several other single women lived alone nearby. Soon, a couple of them had come by offering bread and scones, and she found herself with a crew of girlfriends for the first time since she was a teenager. We bury bodies for each other, she said. The trouble of releasing a memory is that it has forced O'Connor to relieve, to relive her past, and that can be a traumatic experience, even if it does spur a cultural reckoning. Down the mountain, as they call it, nobody can forget about Sinead O'Connor, she said. But up in the village, nobody cares, which is, a, which is beautiful for me, she says. It's lovely having friends. All right. That was a good piece. A good article. Um, I think there's a lot you could take from it, just if you want, if you want to, you know. There is. There's a lot of, a lot of truth. Uh, sometimes people try. Sometimes people try to speak the truth, being politically correct. And sometimes people don't care about being politically correct. They just speak the truth the way it is. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's 
kind of like an epitaph of, of her life. She just tells it like it is. And she, it's not that she's trying to hurt people. That's not her purpose. Her purpose is to tell the truth. And if it hurts you, then it's the truth. The truth is more important. Uh, and if it hurts you, well, then maybe you should think about what the truth is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sounds like that this article is, that's what I'm kind of taking from from uh, her life. Uh, she chose to live her truth. She chose to live her truth. She wasn't going to live someone else's uh, image of her. Mm-hmm. She lived her truth. And that's it's a good lesson for all of us. Because I think if you try to live someone else's image of you, you're not going to be happy. No. Uh, you're going to get scarred. And sometimes those scars don't heal. Uh, but the scars of living who you are uh, are easier to live with. Well, because I, it's it's real. I like that she is able to realize that the moment that people say her career fell off the rails is the same moment that she says it got back on track. I don't. I mean, I think that she would have been in a worse state had she been a pop star for ten more years. I think right. that uh, a lot could be uh, attributed to the fact that she made that choice. I have a buddy. And he got married and he got divorced like 100 days later, 90 days later. I don't know. It was like three months. And, you know, people are like, wow, that was quick. But the thing is, if it wasn't going to work, what's the point in being miserable? You know, you kind of have to respect them for saying, whoa, I jumped into this both feet first. And then I said, I've made a horrible mistake. And I immediately corrected that mistake. And things weren't going to work. So why make myself and my wife miserable for three, four, five years just for the sake of appearances. Like, let's just get a divorce 90 days into our marriage. Like, you kind of have to respect that on some level, right? Well, I'll go to them too, David. I'll say what I believe. I say, was it wrong to get married in the first place? And I would say no. They probably had every intention. (laughs) No, Mm -hmm. it was right at the time. Times change. Yeah. Uh, people change. And you only have one life. And if it changes, you've got to be true to yourself. And and maybe that's what, what this article is trying to get at from her. Yeah. If we take that, like you said, was it wrong to get married at the time? Was it wrong for her to say, okay, well, you're a very up, you're an up and coming singer. You have a lot of talent. You have an ethereal voice. We're going to give you this Prince song. We're going to uh, put you in a black turtleneck or whatever. What is she wearing? I think she's wearing a black turtleneck. We can see there's a picture of her. Uh, from the video. Where is it? Yeah, it's right at the beginning. Yeah, she's wearing a black turtleneck. We're going to put you in a black turtleneck and do a uh, close-up. And the whole video is going to be you in close-up. It, uh, You know, she went through all that stuff because, like, this is what you do when you're a singer, and I want to be a singer. Well, as a result of that, she had fame and fortune. She was a pop star, and she wanted to be a singer. I don't think that she knew what being a pop star meant until she was one. And then she said to herself, no, I'm not going to take like commands from people. Like when they say, oh, whatever you do, don't speak out about, you know, child abuse in the Catholic Church. She's like, no, I am going to speak out about that. And, and then they call her the face of evil for speaking out against child abuse. And it's like, ah, well, you got that one wrong, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And actually... <clears throat> We know now that what she was saying was right. Mm-hmm. She was right. She was spot on. But at the time, it was something that made everyone uncomfortable because they didn't want to hear that. And so on one side, she was right. And time would prove her right. On the other hand, uh, it made a lot of people uncomfortable. that They didn't want to hear it. And so someone could, I mean, you can argue this so many different ways. Like, well... Did she come out? Did she say it the right way? Was it in the right place? Like she waited for the right time, uh, they, they said in there. And the right time was was where live SNL. Yeah, you can't take it back. The they, they can't edit that out. No, it's it's there. It's out there. And so she did it. OK, well, could she? And so people say, well, I believe what she's saying is right. But could she have done it a little bit differently where it wasn't so shocking? Uh, well, that's someone else would have done it that way, but that's the way she chose to do it. 
And I think that we need to recognize people's choices and respect them, uh, respect what they say, and, and don't try to judge what they say by how they do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, maybe it could have, maybe, I'm not saying she could have, maybe she could have said that differently in a different venue, uh, maybe in an article or something, but no, that was her choice. No, I mean, so, I think she got go maximum impact. People still remember it. And Bob Geldof, like she's saying, well, if she says something bad about me, I'll still be her friend because that's just who she is. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I uh, I think that he's known her long enough that it's like, that's just who she is. But uh, just to go back to that scene, let me just pull up the picture they have in the article here Yeah, uh, of her tearing up the Pope. You can see it's uh, old grainy TV footage. Uh, she sang the song. She said it, she changed the lyrics to be about child abuse. She held up a picture of Pope John Paul and she tore it in two. And then she said, fight the real enemy. Mm-hmm. And then they turned her into the enemy. Mm-hmm. And she was not the real enemy. Mm-hmm. So they didn't listen to her. They vilified her. And they were wrong. But it was decades before... They realized that the real enemy was exactly the same person that she was talking about when she ripped up the photo. She was right. Well, he represented... He represented that. He was the leader of that group. He was the leader of that group. He represented that. And so when you have that type of a name calling, uh, be careful. So maybe who you are, the person you're calling names on, maybe they are identifying a group. There's where the problem is. Mm -hmm. Again, there's so many parallels to today. Yes. And uh, of what what happened on January 6th. Or or you know these pundits these days they have to come down on everything and it basically has to be well if you're a right-wing or left-wing pundit it has to be that the other side is bad. And the right. thing is in a knee-jerk reaction something comes out and you immediately have to say oh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said this and that's bad. Um because I'm a right-wing pundit or if you're a left-wing pundit you say, oh, uh, Mitch McConnell said this, and that's bad. And you have no idea how these things will play out. And it could be like, oh, look at this. 20 years ago, you said the New Deal would be horrible, but it pulled us out of the Depression. Like, what do you know? You know? So you're sort of having all these takes on these issues that are all knee-jerk reactions. And you don't have the information. You know? You don't have, you don't really know what's really going on. You just sort of are forced to sort of have an opinion because you can't really be a pundit and say, oh, the Green New Deal. Well, I don't really know what to think about that. We'll have to sort of pass some legislation and see how it plays out in the marketplace. You're not allowed to say that. You're saying either this is the greatest thing ever or this is the worst thing ever. And like neither of those are true, but those are the only things you ever hear. Um, So if someone were to come out and say, you know, fight the real enemy, I guess, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say about this, except for that Sinead O'Connor was right. I liked this piece because it's like, wow, it, it sort of derailed her career. She's fine with that. And that sort of gives me comfort. Well, she says, now my career is on the right track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just the opposite. And I think that uh, uh, the bravery of of her or just anyone who's saying, you know, you could say I'm wrong, but I know I'm right. And you you just stick to what you know is right. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's what you have to do. But the other thing, too, is is when people start saying things that, that don't seem to fit, well, like we say here, we like in our podcast, we always say, uh, talk, let people talk, but try to understand what they're saying. If people try to understood what she said instead of villainize her, then maybe they would find something, some truth there. Mm-hmm. It took 20 years for people to look into this. Yeah. And they found they found some some problems. Some, some major, problems. major problems. Major problems. So when people say something, whether you agree with it or not, try to understand where they're coming from. Try to understand what they're what, what do they mean by that? Mm-hmm. It could be wrong. It could be right. Could be wrong. But you should try to understand other people. 
Yeah. And, I mean, you don't necessarily need to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but don't dismiss them out of hand if you don't know. No. I mean, if someone is saying, I see this evil going on in the world, don't call them the face of hatred. Say, I don't know if I agree with that. I haven't heard about this, but I'll look into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, good. This this has been a lot of good. Uh, I'm sure that uh, if there was someone else here, like if we had, we could pick some people with different views in our podcast. If they were here with us, I'm sure they would pull some things out of this that that we haven't. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, it's not that we it's not that we have all the everything out of this article that could come from this article. But we, but the process of listening and the process of understanding, I think, uh, David, I really feel good about this podcast is what we do. Mm -hmm. And so if we had another person, they'd come out with something different. But the, but, but the point is that they're trying to understand what's being said. Yeah. I think that's a good place to leave it. Shall we conclude the episode? Okay. Yeah, we've already said it a number of times. You got the music playing? It's playing right now. Okay. Hey, Sons of Sequoia podcast. Uh, we say keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. 